The Good Investing Podcast connects you with successful investors and business leaders who invest in or are experts in a range of industries, but do it with a difference. I think as a leader, being as positive as you can, within reason, I think you've got to be balanced on the risks and stuff. But, you know, leading a team, if you can kind of portray that positive energy, I think it goes a long way. Hello, everyone. My name is Nathan Parkin, and I'm the Investment Director and Co-Founder of Ethical Partners Funds Management. And I'm really looking forward to this episode. There's probably no other large listed company that draws as many opinions on its strategy to transition itself and the world from fossil fuels to clean renewable energy as Fortescue. I was just recently on the ground as operations in the Pilbara, and it was certainly an eye-opener for a number of reasons. Obviously, the iron ore operations are of a scale that needs to be seen to be believed. But what is different to other large-scale miners is that Fortescue is looking to use some of the cash that is generated by the current $130 a tonne iron ore price to revolutionise the company and global energy markets by investing in a number of areas of clean energy innovation, including the electrification of major mining sites, ammonia-driven sea transport, battery-powered heavy equipment, and the production of green steel, amongst other things. Now, of course, it all sounds good on paper, The vision is inspiring, and if anyone can pull it off, it's Andrew Forrest. But the path has been bumpy and not without controversy, and perhaps that is to be expected given the challenges ahead and what is at stake. I can't think of anyone better than our guest today to explain to us how the vision can come to fruition. We'll get to know Mark Hutchinson a little better by exploring his background, his values and experience before we dig into his current role at Fortescue. No pun intended. Mark commenced with Fortescue Energy in July 2022 and became Global Chief Executive Officer in August 22, reporting directly to the Fortescue Board. Mark's focus as CEO is to drive growth in Fortescue Energy, Fortescue's green hydrogen and green technology business. In 2023, the team had final investment decision on three major projects with more to come. Mark brings extensive business and leadership experience at a senior level having held various roles at GE over a 25-year career, the two most recent as President and Chief Executive Officer of China and Europe. In these roles, Mark led the efforts to strengthen GE's operations across China and Europe and developed and executed a shared growth strategy for all of the businesses, which helped to drive significant growth year on year. He also led the integration of Alstom power and grid businesses into GE following its $23 billion acquisition. A highly experienced international business leader with a passion for environmental, social and governance aspects, Mark sits on the board of Alpha International and has previously held a board position at Worldwide Generation, non-executive director roles at Blue Scope Steel, Mission Australia, Allianz Australia Insurance and Alpha Australia. Mark holds an honorary Doctor of Business from the University of Queensland where he is the primary sponsor of the Ethics Chair. Well, Mark, welcome to the Good Investing Podcast. Great to be here, and thanks for the invitation, Nathan. Very good to see you again. Likewise. So today we're going to cover a lot of ground, Mark, but if we could start with your background and career at General Electric, this is a very well-known business, and some fun facts, two of GE's employees were awarded the Nobel Prize for Science, and the company was actually one of the 12 original companies in the Dow Jones Industrial Index. But it's also very well known globally for the innovative management style and maybe the culture, particularly under Jack Welsh. 
I read a number of books about Jack Welsh. He was like the quintessential American businessman when I was younger. But we're really interested in your experience there and what culture was at GE at the time that you were there. I'd say that over the 24 years I was there, Nathan, it evolved over time. And so, and, and I'm often asked, like, you know, who who was a better leader? Was it uh, was it Jeff Immelt or was it Jack Welsh? And I think they were both leaders for their time, actually. Um, so when Jack was there, I was kind of young, um, you know, uh, it, it really at the the start of my career, I guess. And uh, being around him was just, you know, it, it was like being around, uh, you know, a god almost, you know, because he he just was in in the, the the middle of everything. And during that time, um, the the company was very very broad in in a uh, its application of businesses. So we had everything from aircraft engines to medical to lighting to NBC even, you know. So we had a uh, so very, very broad, and the philosophy was that you 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 train leaders, and you could they can go and lead anything. So that was the culture. Um, so it was very much an American culture, I think, under Jack. So it became global more under Immelt. Um, but it always was a meritocracy, which is the one thing I loved about it. And I, and it always had very strong values, which fitted very well personally with my own. So that's why I stuck around with them for so long. But I think the Jeff, uh, Jack was an amazing character to see in action, and uh, I learned a lot just watching him, um, mainly about how to, how to deal with complexity, because you you just how do you deal with those kind of variety of businesses in different countries, and you see him in a in a in a presentation uh, just listening, and how he would learn, and I think a lot of it came back to Nathan is that, and what I, my biggest learning at G was it's. You as a leader, you're only only as good as the people you have around you, mm. and 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 then you know his his view is if if someone knew their stuff, you could trust them. If they didn't, then you 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 know he was very ruthless in getting rid of them. And he used to um, I, I I used to watch him. He'd kind of listen, then he'd drill, and he'd drill really hard on one point, and that was his you know his, his test drill almost. That um, he would go deep, and if you ever got to the bottom of your knowledge, you're in big trouble. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but the complexity of of what he how he dealt was something which G was extraordinary teaching its leaders. So I do remember one one anecdote that I met him um, um, you know, very early in my career. I saw how he operated, and about 20 years later, one of my colleagues turned around and says, "Mark, you remember how?" Jack was so good at complexity. He says, that's what we do now. And he was right. You know, over that 20-year period, the organization had taught us how to deal with complexity. And uh, and, and look, you know, to me now, you know, in a different uh, sphere of my life, everything I learned at GE, um, 24 years of training is is use, I use now. I think that's a fascinating part of a company like GE, like it, you know the global operations in health, power, transport, manufacturing, technology. There must be some parallels with you know dealing with that complexity, but also the thing that you know is front and center for you in Fortescue Energy. There's new technology all over yep. it. Um, I imagine there's some parallel for sure. Oh, totally. I mean, I, I, honestly, I think that the, I kind of view that 24 years as my schooling for Fortescue. You know, it was just, it was, I was just my training session and everything I've used is, is relevant now and new technology, you know, we're going to new markets, we've got new products. I mean, we're in a market where there is no product, there is no price, no one's ever done it before. 
um, that the AGE has equipped me to 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 be able to do that. You um you've talked before about um, one of the attributes of a good leader is the ability to analyze the data and then just make mm. decisions from the gut. Is is a kind of is that something that's enduring for you? Is is it how you do things like in an in an organization with I think a hundred thousand employees in GE Europe? Is that the type of thing that you need to do to be able to manage that complexity? Um, I'd say I'd answer that two ways. I think the first thing on data, I mean, this is something I think you you have to learn as a as a leader. I think I've learned more off bad leaders in the past than good leaders. And bad leaders get lost in the data and the way they solve it is you get more data and they get even more lost in that. And a good leader is able to really look at a thousand bits of data and pick what the relevant bits are. And then more importantly, to take what you know and make a decision. And so that's good, that's good leadership. Not always going to get it right. But the second part of that is, again, I come back to if you have really, really good people around you, then that makes it a lot easier. I always found where you had leak, weak links in your team, you end up doing their job as well, actually. And when you're in that position, then your leadership is weak, actually. So I think it's a combination of having really good people around you that you can turn to somebody and say, look, you know, there's a power risk here or there's, you know, there's, there's, there's this problem. And they, for them to turn around and say, yeah, got it, um, is everything. Mm. And if you can trust that person, the team around you, that that's 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 uh, really what you need as leadership. But the data thing is important, and and something again, G taught me was to take mountains and mountains of data, and to pick. And that's where Jack Walsh was amazing. He just could pick the right things to talk about by scanning through, you know, some pretty high level documents. Oh, that's fascinating. Do you think it's important to collaborate with other leaders and and global business leaders or experts in in the field that you're in, or do you kind of prefer to you know go it alone? I think um, I think you have to collaborate. Like basically, I've been at COP for the last uh, week, and uh, I think I did in four days sixty meetings or something. So, and they were all all around collaborating, you know, because we, we we're into a new market. We need others to come along with us. We need to use the brains of the world. So I think collaboration is massive. However, when it comes to the do part, then you just have to go out and do it. So I think that's the difference. I've you know what I love about being a Fortescue is, you know, we'll we'll talk to anybody. We'll work with anybody. It's, you know, we we talk about, we're baking the pie, we're not dividing up quite yet. So, you know, we're all in the same boat. There isn't really competition. The competition is a fossil fuel world, actually. Hmm. But when it comes to do, then, you know, we're not going to wait around for anybody. Yep. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. Um, another thing I've read about your philosophy has been to take risk and take on the hardest job. But I think about Fortescue Energy, there's a bit of that in what you're doing now, <laughs> a little bit. Um, you know, how did you arrive at, at that kind of philosophy in your business life? And 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 has that been a big positive over the long run for you? I think um, it's a great question, Nathan, because I, I kind of look back at my early career and something G was amazing. It, it had thousands of opportunities and, and paths to go down. So when I, I figured out pretty quickly that, that there's no way I was going to plot my career because I didn't know which way, which turn it was going to go. But what I found was that as I was offered opportunities, normally I was not the first choice. 
And um, I had some very good mentoring early on. I says, Mark, you know, particularly when you're young, the, the harder the job is, the more risks you take, the more you're going to learn. So, you know, go with it. And I, I, I know I'm very blessed that, you know, I have a wife who's very understanding and willing to travel the world. We've lived in eight countries, um, you know, we've moved 15 times. That's just part of who we've become, right? But, but there, were, there were people I can remember who were definitely the first person for the job. And years later, I'd almost look back in the real view mirror and they hadn't changed. They were still in the same job. They hadn't grown. I'd bypass them by miles. And, um, and so it made me realize, well, actually, taking the risk is actually, uh, you know, the safest thing to do, actually. Hmm. The, the bigger risk is not taking the risk in some ways and staying, trying to be comfortable. I had, I had some of my colleagues like, oh, they, they've, they've got this great opportunity, but I need to talk to my, you know, six-year-old child about it. Like, you've got to be kidding me, like six-year-old <laughs> child, you know? And they did. They listened to the child and like, oh, I can't move because he likes his friends, you know, but, but so, so look, I, I've, I've, I've always taken um, the hard job. This one was, you know, the moving to Fortescue. Yeah, it's tough, mm. but I'm loving it. Mm. It's just so much fun. You know, maybe I'm a little bit crazy too. Um, but um, just the, the the opportunity to do something different and to take all the skills you've got and and to to, to you know, kind of venture into the unknown, um, I've I've always enjoyed that. I've thrived on that. Not everyone's cup of tea, but I think uh, I my, the advice I give to you know um, you know young colleagues or if I mentor someone is look you know if you when you're young take the risks you'll learn tons and uh, you'll you'll find that the people will want you on their team. Because, you know, you're you're you know, you you know you're you're willing to do the hard stuff, basically. Absolutely. Another thing that I've read about uh, one of your philosophies is to stay positive all the time, and no matter what's going on, it must have a an effect on the decision you subsequently make to making the decision to actually be positive about whatever's happening, but also on the people around you. Um, one of the stories that, that I've read is when you went door to door selling encyclopedias early in your career, maybe your first job, that you had to actually make the decision to be positive when things weren't yeah. going your way. Uh, I imagine that's something that you know, that's endured in your career, and and particularly um, at the moment with, with the with with the unknowns, I suppose, in all the markets that you guys are going into. Yeah, I think I, I was very lucky in some ways. I'm, I I. I learned that very early on in my career. I did encyclopedias door to door, which is I would never recommend to anybody. But it was um, it, it was in my formative years, and I learned two things which served me well for for all my career. Firstly, was is persistence. It, it's always when you give up, this the one where, where you you make the sale. So it's the, if you give up on the 99th store, it's the hundredth you make the sale. So persistence is everything. And secondly, when it, you know, we, we, we were paid on commission actually. So I was hungry and, and it, it, I realized after a while that it, it wasn't you who bought, it was me who, my attitude, which sold to you. And if I was very positive about it and very enthusiastic, it, it was infectious. And so I find, I found on my life, you know, being enthusiastic, passionate, being positive about stuff, particularly in the leadership position, it's infectious because I've been around leaders who are negative and it's, it's also infectious and it's just, you know, kills a company or a business. So um, I think as a leader, being as positive as you can within reason, I think you've got to be balanced on the risks and stuff, but, you know, leading a team, if you can kind of portray that positive energy, I think it goes a long way. 
just touching or maybe um, changing topics a little bit, your your business leadership in China, I heard you say that it took you a couple of years to really understand China and the way business was done there and, and perhaps the people you're doing business with. But what did you do going into like a new environment like that to to get your, you know, personally to understand those markets? What sort of things did you do that were maybe a bit different than where you would had worked uh, before? Yeah, so I think um, I must, again, with G being a global business, you, you really got to understand the, the idea of cultural nuance. And um, it's so, so important, so important. You almost kind of grow an antenna after a while that you can go into a different culture and you pick stuff up um, that if you don't know, you can make some fatal errors, actually. So, you know, just simple things like in Japan, I lived in Japan for a while, the way you hold a person's business card, the way you treat that um, is very important. Uh, and if you don't know that, you can you can make some big mistakes, actually. So so I, I, I uh, every time I, and I, I lived in, you know, eight different countries, um, the uh, very different as well. I mean, people think, oh, Asia is one culture. It's not, it's lots of different ones. And uh, so the first, I firstly, I would get a coach, a local coach to teach me. And then really the, the first, you know, 180 days, you listen as much as you can to understand how things work in that environment. So I think listening is the biggest tool you can possibly use going into a new environment. Don't don't bring your own culture in. You've got to understand how the culture works. And I end up loving my time in China um, but um, and understanding just how important something called Guanxi was which is, you know, in, in it's a relationship, really. And, and uh, even if I told you relationship, you think, oh, it's like having someone around for a beer or dinner or, and it's not that. It's, it's, it's just maybe going out to dinner a couple of times with somebody and, um, you know, finding some common ground on something interesting. And you can you build up that relationship, but you're, you're never, you know, I never, in China, you don't invite people home, it's not done. You don't, you don't go to their home, it's not done. So that's just, again, part of the culture. But um, understanding this kind of cultural nuance wherever you go is so important, yeah. It's turning to another topic that I know is um, is personally important to you and, and also for, for us and what we do at Ethical Partners, just the whole finding purpose in business. And I think you... You, know, you can run a business, you can do it well, you can make money for people, you look after your clients, but you know something that's important important to us is finding something a bit deeper. Um, your goals in China, I've heard, were first of all, help solve China's toughest problems, secondly, help the quality of life, thirdly, create global partnerships with national champions, and fourth, develop global talent. Um, not necessarily, you know, the stated goals of a multinational business, but they were important to you, clearly. Yeah. Um, how do you find meaning in business? Like, personally, obviously, Fortescue's got a a particular, very obvious purpose, and, you know, you guys are changing things globally in energy markets. But perhaps before that, like, did you go and search for that? Did you spend time actually learning what those purpose um, points were for you? Yeah, so I mean, China was a was a great education for me. Uh, from and one thing I did do there was, uh, I mean, it's very easy to think that Shanghai, Beijing is China, or it's not actually. China is the rest, <laughs> and so I spent some time 
um, out in the provinces and even visiting like local hospitals and local families even. So you see how people live. And that that was, you actually kind of get to see it firsthand. I think that that was very important to me as I kind of thought about what we're trying to do here. So I think that, you know, understanding the greater goal, why we do what we do is so important. Um, otherwise, what's the point? If it's just about money or just about revenue or your career, I think that's hollow, actually. Now, if, if that's a byproduct of doing something really good, then that, that's a wonderful thing, actually. And China really taught me the the understanding of, you know, and I was there at a time, 2009, 2014, where it was going through an amazing kind of period, actually. And, uh, you know, trying to, how the country was trying to drag you know, hundreds of millions of people out of poverty was extraordinary to witness. And being part of that, I, I, I feel very, you know, very pleased I experienced that. And then I think to uh, to kind of what I'm doing now, I mean, I, I think, um, honestly, Nathan, my, my faith, my, my Christian faith is very important to me in all I do. It, it shapes the values and also the mission. And uh, I look what I'm trying to do now um, and I think this is, you know, it fits into very, very much into my own values about uh, what we have to do. You know, we, 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 we have this world which um, we have to look after, and we're not doing a very good job. And the last fifty years, we've really kind of um, uh, created an existential threat, actually, and with climate. And the wonderful thing about uh, humankind is, though, that if they have the will to to fix something, we can. And so, um, you know, being in this position now where uh, we're trying to do something which is quite extraordinary to, we can't do it by ourselves, but if we can show the way for others, then I think we have a shot at um, making this, this, uh, this planet a better place for, you know, for children and, and our grandchildren. Yeah. And I mean, I know that's a personal um, importance to you as well. I mean, you know, you only need to look at the world's response to COVID and developing vaccines. And, you know, when everyone puts their heads together, these things can be done. I was looking yeah. at um, just the amount of money spent on LNG terminals and trains uh, over the last decade in Australia. It was like something like $230 billion. And when you think about the amount of money people, you know, talk about with the energy transition, if we can spend that much money on LNG plants, I'm sure we can spend a lot more and, you know, up to that yes. level on energy transition it's not that big a deal i mean it's a big task and but the amount of money involved is re is relatively doable in my you know in our view yeah look i i, I would agree with you totally but i think and the the thing is the technology is there now there's nothing there's nothing new that we have to kind of like oh we've got to go solve this first we have enough technology it comes down to the willpower and i think people realizing just you know how bad a situation we're actually in and that every day we throw emissions up into the atmosphere just making it worse every day so there is a, a sense of urgency um uh and and look you know the technology is there it just needs the people to wake up mm, absolutely you um uh business ethics generally I mean, obviously the a very strong point for you personally you went as far as actually funding the professional chair in ethics at University of Queensland um, in the Faculty of Business. So, like, what what prompted you to do that? And obviously, that's important to how people run businesses. But why did you think that you know students and uni students in particular at a young age kind of needed to have that exposure in particular? Yeah. So, um, 
obviously this this is quite quite important to me nathan i think the uh, and this is something at G. Why I stayed there for 24 years, because I love the values and the integrity uh, of the place. You know, it was one strike, you're out. Was kind of the philosophy. Wherever we went, we we were, you know, we held the gold standard on ethics and and integrity. Um, we told told our people all the time, uh, you know, if you see something that's wrong, if you you know let us know, we'll back you up 100%. But if you don't, you're out. So that's, this was the the culture we had, and 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 I I got to realize after a while that that was fairly unique actually, and particularly living in China, that uh, that that just was not the way the business was done. So I I was lucky enough to um to do my university in Australia. I'm not Australian, and so I always thought about how to give back, and I was horrified when I started to think through how I could give back. Was that ethics is not really taught at the Australian universities. It's it's like a subcategory, and there was no you know really any university that had its own kind of ethics course. And to me, if you don't get that right, what's the point? Mm. It's just if you you know if I kind of view that really your your everybody's name is like having a, their own brand. And if you step over the mark or do something wrong, you 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 damage your brand forever. And so it doesn't matter what you do, whether you're a doctor, you're an engineer, you're an economist, whether you're a teacher, if you don't have that North Star right, um, then you're going to get in trouble. And that's going to have massive consequences on your life, actually. So I think, you know, teaching, and this is something you can teach. I, so many, so many um you know, people would ask me when I was in China, I'd go and visit the universities like Chinua and uh, uh, Fudan University, and they'd ask me, what do you do in this situation? Like, you know, how do you how do you cope? And you're like, well, where's your North Star? And um, if you don't know where that is, um, if, you know, if, if, if you if you never, never compromise that, um, then, uh, you know, you'll, you'll be fine. But if you compromise it, you're going to be in trouble. Absolutely. It's a terrific innovation, and yeah, I'd love to see it. Um, spread out even further as well. Now, you've been involved um, with organizations like Mission Australia. You're on the board of Alpha International. Like, How do you find the time to be involved in those? And, and what's some of the rewards that you see those organizations achieve? So I think uh, Mission, I was on for a, for a season, actually. I, I, I've uh, no, no longer on that one. But I, I, learned, I learned a lot of, of, of about humility, actually. Uh, the people who are in the field doing the work are, are remarkable. Um, they're out in, you know, looking after the homeless, looking after the the aged care, and it's something which I know personally I I couldn't do. So I was always in awe of these people who, who dedicated their life to me. And then, and you know, stuff like like, um, you know, the, during the first few weeks I was with Mission, and uh, they they took us out to the parks in the morning, and just to go and talk to the homeless people, and it made me realise that. Actually, you know, you, you most of us walk past homeless people, um, and and we think, oh, this one money. Actually, invariably, they want someone to talk to. Actually, so mm. it's changed the way I, you know, if I, my wife can, she, she always can say I get in trouble because you know, I when I see a homeless, I go and talk to them, <laughs> and um, you know, it's good because they, they they so so I think you know that that was a massive learning for me. Alpha has been a, it's a. Um, it's a Christianity 101 course, which um, is basically given to any denominational church, which allows them to to teach the basics about Christianity. And 
the power of that I've seen globally has been amazing. Actually, if you know, lives changed, um, and and families changed because um, uh, you know they've they've understood uh, you know uh, the faith. So so look, you know, I, I to me getting that balance right between business and and doing you know stuff like this is really really important. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you could almost toss up what's more important. Uh, they're both important. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Just shifting gears a little bit, uh, I'd love to talk about change. And it's pretty clear looking at the things you've done in your career that affecting change at the organization where you're at, whether it's not for profit or, or at work, is really important to you. And can you just talk about your ability and need to to affect change where you are? And you know, what, what do you do when when that ability or the organization isn't quite suited to that? Yeah, um, I've had a few of those. Uh, <laughs> <for> <laughs> you sure. don't have to name them. I'm just, no, just no, generally talking them. about them. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, look, I th- I think our job as leaders is you you you've got to try and if you firmly believe in in a that an organisation or or a team has to go a certain way, you try your best uh, and you you try you give it a hundred percent, but it doesn't mean that the organization will necessarily follow so i think there's always a point where you've got to call it a day and say okay if 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 it doesn't work then move on right you know you just you try your best and again i i kind of get the question a lot lot of this question in china is like what do i do if i'm working for an organization where the values are not good and so my advice was, was always to like well you firstly you try your best can you change it and second, if you can't get out and go and find um, the organization which is right for you. And I look, I've, I've had that experience as well. You try the hardest you possibly can. It, you know, the organization won't move or doesn't want to change. And so, so be it, move on. So, What do you think the, the important attributes are of a company that can actually make the, make the change? A bit like uh, Fortescue is now, you know, obviously a strong metals business, but making, making quite a deliberate and high profile change to do other things we've seen many businesses in the past that through the life of corporations they'll either affect change and survive or they won't and i'm not saying fortescue's there at all but it's just a interesting shift in, in terms of the the corporate direction and a deliberate one and you know we, yeah. we see plenty of businesses that don't and aren't able to do that what do you think a company needs to be able to shift over the long run I think the the most important thing is leadership, and and uh, having the will to to really kind of go out into the unknown. I mean, I think Fortescue is unique because we have Andrew Forrest <laughs> in many ways. I mean, he came, he built this company out of nothing over twenty years, and he, you know he's seen another gap in the market where he he's, he's realised that the world needs to have an alternative to fossil fuels. It's not going to come from the oil and gas world. Um, that nobody's really stepping into that 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 uh, you know that area. Now he's doing it for all the right reasons, but he's also doing it because he knows being a first mover, we're going to make a ton of money out of it. Mm. So you know, so I think look, lead, leadership is is I think absolutely pivotal. If you don't have the right leadership, and again, I've I've learned off bad leaders more than good, and and those that don't have any ambition, um, they don't take these kind of risks. So it's 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 you put yourself. Um, you know, on the line, I, I, I kind of use the analogy. I've, I've talked about this a lot at COP. Is that we've gone out and said we're going to be 
completely decarbonize as a company by 2030. Now, now we, and look, you know, we don't, we don't know how to get 100% there yet, but that's okay. And so the difference between us doing that and someone doing 2040, 2050 is that really if you're doing 2050, you're saying it's someone else's problem. Yeah. So I think, I th- so I think it comes back to making it your problem, actually. So, and, and, you know, we see this as our problem, whether it's decarbonization, whether it's showing the world as fossil fuels. So that just drives us um, just to, to, to make sure we can do it. I was going to ask you next, what does success look like? But I think you'd probably just answered that. <laughs> like in five <laughs> or 10 years time, I'm guessing to achieve those goals that you guys have put out there, um, it kind of defines it, right? Well, I think I think there's two parts so on the decarbonization of the mines. We'll have a fully operational mine with zero uh, emissions, which um, is going to set the gold standard for for everyone else. And uh, you know, I, I, in fact, our view it de-risks the company dramatically because mm-hmm. investors are are going to invest in us rather than others. Buyers are going to buy from us rather than others. So, so we think that that's a very good business decision. Plus, we we um, we don't have to buy nearly a billion you know liters of diesel. Every year, on on the the green energy side, success is when we get to that tipping point where, and, and look, copper is negotiating this as we speak. Is you know getting even the words fossil fuels in the in the final statement, which uh, they probably won't do, but that's that's the reality. We have to, the world has to replace fossil fuels, and if we can, you know, be the catalyst to get that going, and and uh, then that's success. And congratulations getting to FID or final investment decision on on the first three projects. Uh, that's an yeah. exciting thing to read about um, for us. Can you describe the the FID process, the rigor that's you know that that you have to put to the board to to get over that hurdle? Yeah, so I I think the board is um, uh, very used to doing projects. If you think about what Fortescue is, it's not really a mining company; it's a projects company. So and they do it very well. Um, they they built built things you know in less time and less money than than most. So the rigor that's put into uh, you know doing a new project and particularly a new industry is immense actually. Uh, so you know when and you know the, we've we've got a a lot of precedents ahead of us. The trouble is that no one's ever done it before. So you know it does does come uh, with probably more risk than than uh, we've we've used in the past. So really um, taking the risks apart. And de-risking the the project as much as we possibly can is really what we we spend most of our time on. So if you think about about a, a hydrogen project, really it's made up of of a number of different components. You have a power, you've got to get the power from somewhere. You have to get the water from somewhere. You need to use electrolyzers. Then you need to turn it to either a liquid hydrogen or ammonia. But look, many pieces of those parts actually are, are already done by people. So the power the water, the ammonia pieces, you know, there you can de-risk that by teaming up with others. So you can actually look at a project which is highly complex and say, well, actually the the only really bit that no one's ever done before is is electrolyzers. So mm-hmm. let's let's really focus on that. And the rest of it will make sure that we bring others in to um to take you know, to de-risk the project for us. Yeah, so it doesn't sound like like with these projects, uh, there's usually be a capital constraint or a like a people constraint or a skills constraint or a technology constraint, it feels like a lot of them are done and you're kind of just missing a few little pieces. 
Yeah, I, th- I think it that way. I don't. I don't think they're as um, complex as as people make out. Actually, I mean, I think you know, an iron bridge, and you've been up to the mines, is mm-hmm. way more complicated than a green hydrogen deal. Right. <laughs> Just that concept of real zero versus net zero. I think you're one of the only companies that have actually committed to real zero. I think that. It just makes so much sense. But could you just briefly describe the difference and why you've deliberately chosen real zero? Because I think um, our listeners and other businesses and investors out there don't necessarily see them as different things. Yeah. So I think uh, the concept of net zero um, uh, really was, you know, as a compromise in the Paris Accord. So it it it, it allowed we believe the fossil fuel world to kind of compromise on on getting to what what the world needs which is which is um we believe is real zero real zero is 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 the concept of not using offsets and the idea of offsets um you know there's there's many different types of offset out there most of them don't work and so we think it's 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 just not true um you know, true emission, you know, emissions reduction. If you're saying, well, look, I can still pump out uh, fossil fuel, but I've got some forest somewhere the other part of the world, which we think is, you know, kind of going to balance it. And like, you know, the, it, we're just, the world's not that sophisticated yet. And you've got to say this forever, by the way, not like, oh, it's just there for two to three years <laughs> and move on. Yeah. So, so I, you know, our, our view is that, you know, our target is to go for real, go for hundred percent, not use offsets, we think it's it's a bit of a fudge, and um, I don't think it helps the world, to be honest. And uh, so we've taken a very kind of aggressive stance on on offsets. Um, others have different views. I mean, if if they if if we end up in a place where they are superb quality, then that's fine. But it's not there yet. So, Mark, when you look forward and assess the risks, what do you worry about the most? We have a pretty good. Um, idea how we're going to get to probably 95% of the decarbonisation. The last 5% is difficult because it's the, the smaller stuff and the, the hard to abate and we don't necessarily have a solution for, but we'll get there. Uh, so I, I'm not not really kind of, um, you know, worried about you know, how, how we get there. I did read uh, recently, I think it was in the Oricon report, that only 17% of companies appear to be aligned with Paris or Paris aligned in limiting climate change. What do you think that, I mean, Australia's got a terrific pool of superannuation. They've got some some powerful funds there. What do you think that the superannuation pool generally can do to, you know, persuade companies or, or lead companies to actually get there faster? Because there seems to be a, a whole lot of businesses that will have some goals, as you said, that are someone else's problem out to 2050 not necessarily have the interim goals, but do you think the superannuation system and the concentration of funds here can play a role in in getting there faster? Yeah, hundred percent. This is kind of quite dear to my heart. I think for a number of reasons. I think firstly, having sat on a few boards, it became pretty apparent to me that companies will not move, um, un- unlike uh, Fortescue, I guess, which is somewhat different unless investors tell them to do so. So if, as you look at these, you know, the landscape in Australia, really investors, it's the funds, it's the superannuation funds, and then it's the mum and pups, right? So I actually have, I've, I've talked to, you know, um, at forums before where I've asked the question, like, does anybody, 
have an activist investment portfolio and nobody puts a hand up. And I, the second question is, well, do you have a superannuation fund and everyone puts a hand up? And they're the same thing. Yeah. We just don't think about it the same way. And so I think the way that the superannuation industry has been set up, um, you know, it, it has the opportunity to, to, to make massive change if it wants to. And if, if, if it took, if it was more aggressive in its approach to uh, energy transition, companies would do something about it. But until it does, companies won't. So it's a bit of a chicken egg situation, I think. And, uh, and so I, I kind of, I, I believe that, you know, if we could get mom and pops to be more vocal, um, if the superannuation funds would be more aggressive on targets and, and what they required, um, we can make a much quicker change in here in Australia. Yeah, it'd be great to see, um, um, you know, more participation from more investors to actually, you know, achieve those things. We've seen terrific yeah. outcomes as a shareholder when we're saying, like, this is important to us, obviously make money and, and, and do well there, but at the same time spend some money putting a credible transition plan together. Yeah, um, We're seeing bits and pieces of it, and I think companies are generally moving the right direction, but obviously needs quicker execution there for sure yeah i i love what you guys do by the way um you know nathan and and uh i th but i think it's not a matter of people have the plans it's the it's the the timeline the speed mm -hmm. and we're just too slow we're just way too slow we we, we just you know we, we, it's, it's just gonna um it's gonna come off so fast if we're not careful yeah. i think that's where i mean for us that's where a company like fortescue uh, will change the competition. You guys are in competitive markets, and when you do um, stop buying, you know, almost a billion liters of diesel per annum, it's going to lower the cost, going to make the business more resilient. I, I think the competitors will struggle at the time to continue to do business the same way. So it really does need someone to step out and say, "Hey, we we can achieve this," and yeah. I think it will drag. The competitive forces in markets and and business will will drag people forward, um, but it yeah. needs someone to step out. And uh, you know, we we really respect the stance that you guys have taken. And you know, the, like what you said before about not taking risk is actually the biggest risk you can do. Yeah. <laughs> like yes. like what looks like risk is is just action. And yeah, I think it'll it'll flip around at some point. And those that haven't taken that kind of kind of perceived risk will actually look like they're quite slow we, yeah we're trying I think, to live yeah yeah i think i think you know this it's just it's making sure you we put the noise aside there's so much noise around and you just got to get your head down and, and just get get a, get on and do it so and, and that, that's what's beautiful about this place is you you set the team a goal here they just go and do it so terrific um look now i just want to shift gears a little bit here um, this is some questions we ask all the people on the podcast about leadership and, and business and things. So I've just got a couple of questions here. What do you think the most important aspect of good leadership is that is often overlooked? I think humility. I think humility. If you look at who the best, really the best real leaders in the world are, um, you know, humility is, is kind of way up there. Um, and and as leaders, it's very very tempting not to be humble. So you, it's it's a slippery slope. Um, you know, as I, actually, I was watching the the movie Napoleon, and there's a very good book by Andrew Robbins on uh, Napoleon's life and his rise and his fall. 
and and he really where he lost it where he lost his humility actually right so so i think the humility is is a if you want to find a good leader find a humble leader uh so um it's somewhat overlooked and you know it tends to be the brash and the uh you know the type a to personality it's not always the case good answer and secondly as fortescue energy grows it's obviously an entrepreneurial uh, business today as it grows and you you know you achieve the revenue and and you achieve that growth how do you stop the business becoming institutionalized in like a traditional sense where you stop taking these risks um well i i, I solution my problems at the moment <laughs> it's probably <laughs> so, a little too far in the future so so i I think it's it's really making sure that we think about constantly think about adjacencies. So, yes, we're making you know green hydrogen ammonia, but we're also in the electrolyzer world. So that's a brand new business. We're we've taken this company in, in uh, from the Formula One Williams team, and and that's our battery technology. We've we just announced you know Fortescue Capital, which is going to go raise money for us. So we believe that in this transition, everything is up for grabs again. So, um, and we've just got to keep thinking, you know, vertically, laterally, horizontally, all the different ways that we can benefit from the transition. And I, I think that's going to be endless, to be honest. Okay. Have you got two equally qualified candidates for a job that you're hiring for? Which one, how do you determine who to hire from there? Uh, passion. Passion. All right, good answer. And one of the best career decisions you made? How did it work out? What did you learn from that? I took a risk uh, uh, taking a job in China I knew nothing about. And uh, I've I've always been amazed at the human, human capability of what, when you take a job and you, you, you're swimming in the deep end and you can't feel the bottom, and a year later you're bored. Um, so at the time, it was a massive risk for me. I hadn't been on the industrial side of the business it was in a place which I knew, but to live there is a different um, kettle of fish. And, and it would end up being the best decision I ever made. They're looking back at my career. My five years in China was the most rewarding. Terrific. Uh, what are you reading at the moment? Um, I'm reading, uh, what am I reading at the moment? Um, I've, it's it's uh, the same, the author, the same author as I, Pilgrim, actually. So it's a detective model. I just can't remember the author's name at the minute. He's just come out with a new one. Something about the loc locusts. <laughs> so it's like a story of fiction or a, like a... Yeah, no, it's just, yeah, it's just fiction. So I, 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 I quite, I like enjoying, um, I, I enjoy reading a lot, actually. Um, but at the moment, I don't get a lot of time. I wish I had more. Yeah. No, you got to have, you got to have something to do to relax. <laughs> yeah. And what advice would you give your 21-year-old self? Uh, don't worry about anything. I mean, if you kind of looking back, I'm, a, I'm an introvert. Um, I worried about my career, my job, everything. And I think as a young person, you know, if, if you could take worry out of the equation uh, about useless stuff, um, life would be so much easier. <laughs> and uh, maybe this question follows on, but what issues keep you up at night these days? Actually, I, I sleep pretty well, actually. I think the, the people say you must be under a lot of stress. stress. I, I'm, I don't, I'm not really, actually. I, I've, I feel I'm in a good place. I, I enjoy what I'm doing more than anything else. I don't lose sleep over stuff. I think the... 
Um, you know, where the planet goes worries me. I think about that a bit, you know. It's more because I've got grandkids. Mm. And uh, I, I, I think it would be tragedy for them to grow up in a world which is hostile for many reasons. So if I can do my little bit, um, then that's a, that's a good thing. But uh, I think in, in one thing I learned off Jack Welsh and, and Jeff Immer is, you know, the, the, the bigger the job, the less you worry, actually. Mm. That's really interesting. And is there one person that's inspired you the most in, in your career or maybe even in your philanthropy or, or giving life? Well, I've had an, uh, some amazing mentors um, during, uh, you know, my career. Um, you know, there, there's um, at different stages. I think from a business perspective, I, I, I think Jack was an incredible mentor. Um, but there's, you know, there's others which I, I've... Uh, I think I, I admire very much a Steve Jobs, uh, you know, taking taking on a completely different world and, and creating something which you know we never knew we we needed actually. Yeah. Uh, so I, I look at you know, Steve Jobs is an amazing man. There's there's so many uh, examples out there. Churchill, probably my favourite, just as uh, being a a a a man just in the right time in history and uh, how he he took on. Um, you know, the the world and, and conquered it was extraordinary actually so so there's plenty of examples out there that's good now I've just got three more questions and then we'll finish up but um, this is just a this is just an either or quiz so I think you answered actually the first one probably in the first five minutes so we'll see if everyone can remember what your answer will be here but you can you can just answer with one or the other and there's three things so Jack Welsh or Jeffrey Immelt? Uh, Jack, yeah. Would your preference be to fail early at something and change the strategy or just persist no matter what? I fail fast. And would you rather know a lot about something or something about a lot of different things? Uh, something about a lot of different stuff, actually. Excellent. Well, look, we've run through everything. Um, you've been really, really generous with your time and your answers, and thank you for your honesty. Um, and also the insights. Um, I've really enjoyed this. And really thank you very much, Mark, for being a guest on the Good Investing Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. No, thanks. And thanks so much, Nathan. Thanks for the opportunity. Always great to talk to you. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Good Investing Podcast. Subscribe to hear future episodes. And for more information about Ethical Partners Funds Management, visit ethicalpartners.com.au. The information contained in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute investment or financial advice. You should seek tailored advice that is specific to your circumstances before making any investment decision.